from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with David Hoffman on May 4, 2020. David was a successful entrepreneur who was able to retire at 50 and then devote his time and resources in service to humanity. He began by initiating a video series called Angels of Iran to make aware the persecutions of the Baha'is in Iran. During this endeavor, he conceived the Education Under Fire campaign in partnership with Amnesty International and with the support from Nobel Peace Prize laureates Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Jose Ramos Horta, the president of East Timor. This campaign inspired universities across the globe to accept accreditation of an underground higher education institution established by the Baha'is of Iran who are denied the right to attend university by the government of the country. Soon after, he was approached to be executive director of the Association of the Peasants of Fondwa, APF, a USA foundation, which he renamed Raising Haiti Foundation. He talks about the work of the foundation and its alliances with parish twinnings and smallholder farmers. I started the interview by asking David where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I was born and grew up in Miami, I was the only child. Tell the story. There are, you know, three major denominations of Judaism. There is um, Orthodox, which is letter of the law. There is conservative, which is middle of the road. And then there is Reformed Judaism. When Reformed Jews, I say, go to synagogue on the high holidays. We were Reformed, Reformed. We went every other year. So. I never really understood Judaism. I was bar mitzvahed. It was what you did. And of course, I looked forward to the money. Uh, we were the poorer of our relatives. And you always got a good boot, you know, in a bar mitzvah. But even just memorizing or being able to read in Hebrew, I, I couldn't do that. So there was the English phonetical pronunciation, Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, Baruch Atah Adonai. And, you know, paste it into the amazing looking Torah. So you looked like you were reading from it. But of course, I was I was not. So I, I didn't really relate. It made no sense to me. We went through I went through a period of, of really being persecuted. I was 10 years old and we moved to Birmingham, Alabama. I was the only Jew in the school. And I'll never forget the first day of, of class. We had a a teacher named Mrs. Wiggum. She began the day by, and I, I'm, I'm certain to this day that, that that was really for my benefit. She began the day by saying, you know, when I call your name, please stand up and tell us your religion. And I'll, you know, never forget as she went through the A's and the D's and the G's and making her way to Hoffman. My pulse was racing and I, my palms were sweaty, really just devastated to have to get up and say I was 
Jewish and you could feel the energy in the room. I think I kind of resented being something and being not liked for it, something I didn't choose and something I didn't really understand. So I became an atheist. I spent my teen years really believing that, you know, looking at the world around and looking at the violence and the clashing and conflict in the world. And I thought to myself, you know, and often in the name of religion, if this is what God had to offer, then either in my mind, he didn't exist, or I certainly wanted no part of it. I didn't understand it. It wasn't until my college years that I was introduced to the Baha'i faith that changed for me. How was it that you were open to listening to what the Baha'is had to say? Well, you know, it's interesting that you ask. I really wasn't open at all. I was very radical. I, my dad died when I was 10. I think I was very angry about a lot of things. I started experimenting with drugs at the age of 12. And, and from that day on, there wasn't, I don't think there was a day that went by in, in, a, in a decade that I didn't take some form of, of drug. When I discovered the faith, I was actually a film student at USC in L.A., you know, I was introduced to the faith and I was told about the concept of, of uh, independent investigation of truth. And I was invited to a Baha'i fireside and I thought, OK, this will be fun. I'm going to go and prove that this is just, you know, what Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. This is just another expression of that. And I'm going to, you know, take it apart. And I went to do just that. I'm sure I drove the folks who had the fireside crazy, but it began to sort of sink in and I began to uh, just started making sense on a lot of different levels. A fireside being uh, an informal talk hosted by a Baha'i to, to those who would like to learn more about the Baha'i faith, right? Absolutely. And uh, as we have no clergy in the Baha'i faith, and it is for each individual to teach the faith to those who would be interested, we don't impose anything. But that's a format that uh, has been used over time where folks just get together, hear a speaker or have a discussion, have questions and answers. And that was my introduction. And then how was it that you eventually became an adherent to the Baha'i faith? Well, I was going through a very difficult time. I was production managing a senior film. I was a junior that is was probably considered at that time the most ambitious student film ever made. It was quite quite an extraordinary story. And in it, I had to do several things. One of the things I had to do was to line up army vehicles moving in the, in the streets of L.A. in convoy, basically hired with a dollar a day and a tuna fish sandwich, a group of uh, homeless, and transport them. And as I was doing that, the idea of my student thesis film, my senior film, came to me working with these fellows about a society of derelicts living in sectioned off parking lots in East L.A. 15 years in the future where there are so many homeless that the city has to take over parking lots and and designate spaces to accommodate them. And as I was writing that very high stream of consciousness over several days, I'd been to you know several firesides in the course of the last the past uh, several weeks the tone of the story changed. The story is called Space 37, about a, a society of derelicts living in sectioned off parking lots, and the, the protagonist, Johnny, had his Space 37. And the whole tone of the story changed 
you know, the old man picked himself up caneless and began to make his way through the streets of the forgotten city where practically no light ever shone anymore. And he was on his way to a place that he wasn't sure of. And he ends up being caught in a crossfire between two gangs who no longer fight with rocks and but with sawed off shotguns and Colt 45s. And he's killed and he leaves his body and he's soaring high above it. The final scene is an aerial shot of all of the derelicts getting ready for the new day. And Johnny is gone. All that remains is the sign that, you know, was the only thing that delineated his existence from the others. And as I wrote it, I got a shot of electricity. In fact, when I tell the story, it still happens. And I realized that this whole thing was an allegory. And I didn't even realize that, you know, I was the old man. I was going to make films that really depict the horror of the times. And I was wallowing in all of this. And I realized at that instant that Baha'u'llah, who claimed to be and what I was investigating, the, the promised one of all religions, the one who would come to unite mankind, that he was, in fact, that one. And I had to realize that having thrown out the baby with the bathwater, if you will, and looking at looking at what religion has often done in the name of God, that I realized had nothing to do with God. That had to do with what people had done over time from the Baha'i perspective that we believe in progressive revelation that each of the prophets of God who have founded the major world religions, these religions are not separate. They're part of one unfolding process. You know, religion also goes through cycles. In the heyday, when religion is born, when the prophet of God appears, the writings come into the world, the world is infused with this energy. And over time, we move through, if you think of that as the springtime, we move through the summer period, the time of fruition, the creation of new civilizations that rise up out of these teachings, and then eventually into the down cycle of autumn and winter, when we begin to see that the faith's teachings are no longer a practice, that in fact, often it's the antithesis of the teachings that we see in the world. But this is a function of what man has done. We have always had the teachings of God in one form or another. We have generally resisted every new effusion, every new message, either crucifying or imprisoning or exiling or torturing, you know, the prophets of God. This is a story that repeats itself over and over again. And I, I really had a very personal spiritual experience. This was 40, gosh, some odd years ago. I'm speaking with David Hoffman, who is the executive director of Raising Haiti Foundation and founder of the Education Under Fire campaign, as well as an executive film producer. Now, you, I assume, graduated in film, as you were describing your thesis there. So did you go right into film production after university? Actually, no. I, I decided that I didn't want to be a filmmaker after all, because what I thought I wanted to say was no longer really of interest to me. And I actually left university. I ended up going back to another USC, a small USC, University of South Carolina in Horry County, the Grand Strand part of South Carolina years, years later. But I, I left university and moved to Northern California. I got into car sales and did very, very well, but got bored of it within about a year moved back to Los Angeles and worked with a company that focused on estate planning. 
did that for a few years. And then there was a call by the National Spiritual Assembly, the entire, each local community where there are nine Baha'is or more, elect a local spiritual assembly. And then in every country in the world, uh, the delegates that are elected by each area elect annually national spiritual assembly. And those members every five years elect the world governing body, the Universal House of Justice. But I think it was probably the first time the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States came to Los Angeles. And I was a young Baha'i, but I had been elected to the Los Angeles Assembly. And they met first, had lunch with the LA Assembly, and then spoke to the entire Southern California Baha'i community. There were probably 2,000 people there. And they were basically saying, you know, there are far too many Baha'is in the Los Angeles area. If anyone can leave, you should leave. You should go other places. And the place that was pointed to was South Carolina because the Universal House of Justice had just announced the construction of the first Baha'i radio station in the North American continent. The moment that was expressed, I decided, and it was really an impossibility, I decided that I would leave, I would follow their guidance, I would go to South Carolina, and I would leave in 30 days. And it was crazy and impossible because I had a home that needed to be sold or I couldn't leave. I had to be, the loan had to be paid off. It was a very difficult economic time. Interest rates were high. I had had that home on the market for two years, four different brokers, six months each, that never brought me a single tour, let alone an offer. But as soon as I made the decision, I was approached by another Baha'i on the, on the local assembly, and I hadn't said anything, who said, you know, if you ever want to sell your home, we would like to buy it because they knew the house that took place hmm. and I had to wind up business affairs. Everything that that needed to happen happened and sold my vehicle and bought an older Volkswagen van that I would travel in. And on the 29th day, a day ahead of schedule, I actually departed, having liquidated everything except a few boxes that were in the rear of that van. And I say that every good thing that's happened in my life. My soulmate, the woman that I married soon after that I met in South Carolina, my family, my business opportunities, everything flowed to me as a result of that single act of obedience to the National Spiritual Assembly. Are you in South Carolina today? No. I moved to South Carolina thinking that I would teach the faith and I would never work again. I had some income coming in from insurance residuals, but I also had not realized I had a small corporation and my accountant had moved income from one year into the following year. And soon I realized I had phantom income and a lot of income tax to pay, which wiped me out. So here I was in the middle of Hemingway, South Carolina, which is really very rural, trying to figure out what I would do. Gone back to school to finish my degree. That's where that took place. A lovely professor of philosophy and psychology suggested to me that I go to Myrtle Beach and check out the oceanfront condominium sales business. And I did that. That in itself is quite a story. It's probably more than we want to talk about here. I ended up really being very, very successful very quickly. And then the market turned and I applying some of the techniques I had learned in the insurance business, getting on the phone, making cold calls, 
I started in the real estate business there in the winter and no one did that. It had been pretty much an order taking kind of thing. Uh, the market was very strong. Nobody did much of anything in the off season. They waited for the folks to start coming down from Charlotte and from the north. But I got on the phone and I made a dozen sales in the first five or six weeks when you really weren't supposed to be selling anything. And then the market died. And I had an opportunity to figure out very quickly how to begin to move blocks of inventory that were failing very, very quickly uh, created a, a scenario where we were really the only game in town in a market where nothing was really moving. Now, we know that you are a board member and executive director of Raising Haiti Foundation. How is it that you fell into that situation from basically being an entrepreneur? Well, I decided in 05, 2005, to sell my businesses. So I retired. I retired at the age of 50 and began to look at ways that I could serve. And one of the things that touched me greatly was the suffering of the Baha'is of Iran. The first decade of the faith, 20,000 followers were put to death in some of the most cruel and inhumane. I mean, they invented new ways to torture and kill these extraordinary people who meekly went to their death. And since that time, the faith has been under siege in the land of its birth, Iran, even though the Iranian Baha'is have gone out and really been large measure responsible for spreading the faith. It's now in every country in the world. The writings of Baha'u'llah are, you know, number thousands upon thousands of tablets and prayers that have been now translated into 800 languages. Those tablets comprise over 100 volumes of writings. The history of the faith is quite, you know, extraordinary in terms of the suffering that the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith Baha'u'llah endured 40 years of his life in prison and exile, but also the followers of the first 10 years, uh, so many put to death. It spread from one end of the country of Iran to the other. Many notables and clergymen became followers, and but the, the larger measure of clergy were dead set against the idea of a faith. Imagine a faith teaching that this is the day that we don't need clergy any longer. This is the day of independent investigation of truth. This is the day of universal education as a birthright for every human being on the planet. You know, with that education, seeking truth, the truth of God with one owns mind. I mean, when you have a power structure such as exists still in Iran, that is, you know, a system of cronyism that's based on a religious order of some kind, they're going to preserve that. And they, you know, they've done it. You know, over the decades, it's been almost 200 years now since the faith was born. Since the Islamic Republic of Iran came to power in 1979, uh, there was a, a tremendous amount of renewed and increased oppression. There were executions, there were imprisonments. But one of the ways in which the Islamic Republic of Iran has oppressed the Baha'is has been to deny them the right to higher education since the inception of that regime. So since 1979, no Baha'i is permitted to 
attend a university. And what grew up was a, an extraordinary system called the Baha'i Institute of Higher Education, Bihay, if you will, which was generated by a number of Baha'i professors, professionals, you know, engineers, you name it, and accompanied by some wonderful Muslims who supported the Baha'is and who understood the Baha'is, created sort of an ad hoc university to educate their own. And at a couple different points, the government, you know, attacked the leadership of that institution. And it happened in 20, 2011. I was producing a small series of shorts, interviews with Iranian Baha'is who had relatives who were executed, called Angels of Iran. And I met a wonderful, magnificent, one of my best friends, documentarian, Jeff Kaufman, and he helped me with this project. And we decided to make a film about persecution of the Baha'is in Iran, especially with regard to the attack on higher education, because it had just happened that the government had gone into a number of homes of some of the administrators and professors, had confiscated computers and, and files and so forth, and threw the leadership into prison. They were given four and five year prison terms. Uh, so I decided I wanted to make a film about it. But more than that, I didn't want to just make a film. I wanted to create what we called a series of screening conversations that would take the film and a panel discussion to what ended up being seven or 800 universities across the country and Canada and a bit beyond as well. I was working under the guidance of and direction of the National Spiritual Assembly. I put a plan forth and the National Assembly agreed to work with us on it. As we completed that project, Jeff, my filmmaker friend, approached me and he said, you know, I want to make a film about a fellow in Haiti, but I'd like you to come to Haiti and, and vet him with me. And it was a Haitian priest who had accomplished several extraordinary things. He'd created what has become the most substantial microcredit institution in the country and met with him. That film was made. I attended the premiere and there were several folks that were engaged in a couple of different 501c3s here, one that was in support of a organizing body. And I was asked to come and consult and meet with those folks and shared some ideas. And a few months later, I got a call and I was asked to become the executive director and a board member. Of course, I resisted at first. I had no experience in that at all. They kept coming. And one night I had a dream and I woke up and the phrase came to me, Raising Haiti. That association was named after the association it was supporting, the Association of the Peasants of Fondois USA Foundation. And I thought, my God, that's a mouthful. No, nobody here is going to even be able to relate to that. So I had this dream and this phrase came to me and I rarely remember my dreams. And I got up and I went to GoDaddy and I, this was 2016. I said, there's no way raising Haiti is going to be an available domain. You can't find practically any .com or .org anymore. And that's such a great phrase. But I went there and it was available. I thought that's an interesting sign. So I thought about it some more. I also realized that I am kind of a big picture person. I don't enjoy working with minutiae. It drives me mad. And that institution was really 
uh, struggling. They had very minimal resources. And I realized the only way I could do it would be if I could quickly raise a couple of hundred thousand dollars to have a staff to be able to direct and, and do some things. So I sort of made a deal. I said, okay, Lord, if you really want me to do this, you're going to have to let me raise a couple hundred thousand dollars really quickly. And lo and behold, <laughs> I did it in about a two-week period. And I thought to myself, wow, this is easy. It's going to be easy to raise money for this foundation. Little did I know, I was tapping my warm market of folks who have resources and believed in me. They knew me. And once that was dried up, raising funds was really quite a challenge. We went through a couple of years of, of some really difficult times. It turned out we felt, the board felt, that the individual we were partnering with, the, the Haitian we were partnering with, was really not a good choice. Things evolved, and it's extraordinary what's happened. We have new partners. You know, I, I thought of really resigning several times, but partially because I had brought so many people in who were looking to me saying they put up resources, they believed in what I believed in. We, we didn't really understand all that we were dealing with at that point. So I stuck with it. And I'm so glad that I have because we've made some amazing connections and some really extraordinary things are happening right now. So I'm speaking with David Hoffman, who's the executive director of Raising Haiti Foundation and was the founder of the Education Under Fire campaign, which uh, he had described just moments ago. David, tell me about Dr. Mary Sue Carlson. <laughs> well, that is a great story. You know, when I took the position of executive director and board position, I made it emphatically clear that it was an interim thing, that I would do it for a year. And of course, you know, hoping to raise enough funds, I got such a great head start, uh, then it became difficult to hire an executive director and for me just to play a board role. And of course, the year came and gone, and we had nowhere near the kind of resources necessary to hire an executive director. So I ended up continuing to play the role for nearly two years. But along the way, I was introduced to Dr. Carlson, who was an active supporter of Haiti. She was really the the mover and shaker, the, there, were, there were more than one, but she was the prime mover and shaker in her Catholic church in Arlington, Virginia, Our Lady Queen of Peace. And they were part of an amazing system called the Parish Twinning Program of the Americas. And what the Parish Twinning Program has done for over 40 years, I have so much admiration for these people, really. Teresa Patterson, She'll be 80 next year, and she founded this. She's been to Haiti herself personally well over 100 times in her lifetime, and it's a tough place to go, I can tell you. I've been a couple of times. You've got to really have a tough constitution to do that. But they have twinned or paired over 300 U.S.-based Catholic churches with an equal number one-on-one -on -one communities in Haiti. Uh, these are mostly rural communities. You probably are aware that Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. It is really tragic. It, it was a vibrant country 
over the past number of decades with, you know, Western powers stepping in and doing whatever. It really is a country of resilient, wonderful people who have experienced more tests and challenges than I can imagine any human being could even endure. When Sue Carlson and her church decided to become twinning members, uh, affiliates of parish twinning, they said they wanted the most difficult to access, most out of the way parish community that no one else would take. And this is a community, it's actually more, it's 10 communities, if you will, part of an area called, and the main community there is called Maydor. There's no road to Maydor. So after you travel out of Port-au-Prince a couple of hours by car, you have to be met with a donkey, a mule, and you have to ride for four hours muleback. And if you can imagine this very slight woman, tall but slight, riding eight hours round trip two or three times a year just to get there that kind of endurance. When I met her, we chatted and I knew instantaneously, I mean, she did all of this as a practicing ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, (laughs) if you will, but she was just within a year of retiring. I knew instantly that this was the person that I would like to uh, onboard and replace myself. And at first she, she said, absolutely no way. I mean, she was so busy year in and year out with Maydor and leading her church. I wore her down, I think, (laughs) little by little, but she made it very clear that she would not be able to raise any money for raising Haiti. She would not give any money to raising Haiti because she had loyalty to Maydor. She wasn't going to jeopardize that or, or strain that or dilute that. And I said, fine. She also insisted that I remain as co-executive director because she didn't feel she could really rise to it. Well, let me just tell you, all of those things she said ended up being completely not true. She has raised money. She has given money. I've worked with a lot of people in my life. I've owned several real estate development companies, one of the largest marketing real estate marketing companies in Myrtle Beach, which I built really from nothing. I've worked with hundreds of people. I've never, ever really worked with anybody of her caliber. She is the hardest working. She's so fully capable of grasping every big picture, but she's not afraid or daunted to get down into the weeds of confusion or forage your way through piles of minutiae without even an assistant. I just have the, the utmost, utmost respect for her. And she does all of this. Um, as I have done as well, pro bono. She won't take a dime. You could not hire somebody with her passion or character or capacity for less than, you know, I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars or more. She contributes that in kind. She even contributes from her own resources as well. So it's been a joy. We're working very closely now with Parish Twinning and another partner, the first couple of years for me and then the first year or so with, with Sue, because we hadn't transitioned from our original partner, it was a very difficult time, a very difficult time. But I have to say, and I often question, why am I doing it? You know, the Baha'i vision is that that the old world is crumbling under its own weight and that 
Baha'u'llah has come to establish what the Christians refer to as the kingdom of God on earth. It's operating in the world right now. And Baha'is are called upon to, to work within this new vision. And, and here we have such a proliferation of problems in the world. It's overwhelming. Haiti alone is really a daunting, overwhelming challenge. You can just exhaust yourself. You can drain yourself putting out fires in one small area that are raging across the planet in so many different conflicts and in so many different issues and problems. I struggled with that. But at the same time, how can you be a person that is for good things in the world and stand by while people are suffering like they have in Haiti? I mean, these people don't ever catch a break. Anything we can do to help them in any way. And when I say that, I mean, accompany them. These are resilient, capable people to be respected and to be heard and to be supported in whatever ways that they feel they need. And particularly now, some amazing things are happening. I have to say the last several weeks for me has just been the joy of my life. It's been a challenge just because falling from the sky has been just enormous potential and possibilities and we're chasing them. So it's been a bit exhausting. It's really been a, an incredible, a joyous time. So we have been working with the parish twinning group and another group that is really our primary on the ground partner in Haiti, smallholder farmers Alliance. They've planted 7 million trees driven by an extraordinary program that they've created, uh, which they refer to as tree currency, where smallholder farmers, which comprise the majority of folks living in Haiti, smallholder farm is anything less than five acres. Smallholder farmer derives the majority of their income from crops grown and you know from that farm. If you look at an aerial photograph of Haiti, which shares the island with the Dominican Republic, You'll notice that while the Dominican Republic is treed, Haiti is virtually barren. It's been completely deforested. And the reason is that one of the few commodities that folks who are mostly living not in poverty, but in abject poverty, one of the few commodities that they have is charcoal that can be sold in the villages. Charcoal comes from cutting trees down. And that's what has been going on for a long time. Smallholder farmers have figured out how to make the planting and nurturing of trees more valuable than the charcoal. <laughs> Basically, what they do is as farmers arise in a given community, they are willing to work with the agronomists that lead the charge. They are Haitian as well in a given community to plant seedlings in a tree nursery and then work together to transplant them into what is to be a forested area, and then to look after those trees. For that, the farmers that participate get credit. They don't get ever get paid. They get credit, which can be redeemed for crop seed, farm tools, training, livestock, and their harvest yields are improved. Their incomes have increased 50 to 100% on average. You know, when I joined this organization, rebranded it as Raising Haiti from that dream, we've never deviated from 
the core mission of the foundation, which really in a sentence or a fragment of a sentence is the fostering of wealth creation in rural Haiti. That's what we do. And this was like such an extraordinary opportunity. We had to sever ties with the existing relationship where all of this started. And Sue, in fact, Sue Carlson, working with her Maydor community, they already had eight of the 32 nurseries that smallholder farmers has in the country in Maydor. And it's been an incredible experience for them. That's how I learned about a smallholder farmer. It's just so interesting. I did not know this. We started working with them at first. And one of the two founders had a family member that was ill. I didn't have a chance to meet that founder. I was introduced to and working with the Haitian co-founder, Timothy George. But one day I was called to come to a conference call to meet the other partner. So we could introduce one another to each other. And I was asked to go first. And I told the education under fire story that led me to Haiti about the Baha'is, the Bihay and all of that. And this other gentleman listened very patiently and, and very sweetly. And then he was asked and he said, well, let me just begin, David, by saying first that I'm also a Baha'i. So oh, this wow. was like, wow. I mean, the odds of that happening, you could win a hundred million dollar lottery the odds would be better probably than the leadership of two foundations being Baha'is, because there are not that many Baha'is per capita in the world. There's no doubt in my mind that this was a connection that was made beyond this plan. I mean, there's no doubt about it, especially when I see his extraordinary talents and how our various gifts, if you will, opportunities, if you will, have meshed to create something far greater than I think either of us would be able to have done on our own. And that's also in relationship to the Parish Twinning Group. So I'm speaking with David Hoffman, who is the executive director of Raising Haiti Foundation and is the founder of the Education Under Fire campaign that he had described earlier in uh, support of Baha'i higher education for Baha'i youth who were forbidden to pursue higher education as a result of their religion in Iran. David, what do you see the future of Haiti being? Well, I believe, and we've been working on a plan that will take the extraordinary work that the Parish Twinning Program of the Americas has accomplished over 45 years. I mean, not only have they built schools and clinics and the Sue's group alone, they have schools that educate over 3,000 students a year. That's just one of 300 relationships. It's a very productive one. And it's just one of the things that they're doing. But more than that, the relationships that have been created, the respect between the groups here and the groups there, these are longstanding relationships, but the churches are also pressed on many different levels. There's so much to be done, and it's really, really a challenge. But we're working with them, and we're also working with smallholder farmers. We've actually created a task force of the leadership of these three entities 
And what we want to do is we want to introduce community by community, the smallholder farmers program, which I've just described. And also there's a, a smaller program that is really coming into its own, which are microloans made only to women who are members of the farm families engaged in the microcredit program. So what we want to do is we want to bring these tools because we're we're really dealing with four of the largest development challenges of our times. We will be planting 25 million trees in the next five years. This is being funded, by the way, by the Timberland Corporation. Uh, has worked with Smallholder Farmer for the last eight years. They set a goal of 5 million and, and 7 million have been planted, but they decided this past September to become the foremost company in the world for reforestation. Their goal is 50 million trees worldwide, half of those in Haiti because of the relationship with Smallholder Farmer, and it will be done through that process. So we know now that reforestation is the most effective, efficient, cost-efficient tool against the issues with climate change. And so we're impacting that. But that program is really driving the program for the farmers, the training and the resources they earn by caring for the trees. Their crop yields increase. So that is dealing with food insecurity, which, as you know now, with particularly with COVID-19, I've been reading that the number of human beings on the planet who face starvation has doubled to nearly, my last reading, nearly 300 million people. So this is dealing with food insecurity. It's increasing their family income. So it's dealing with poverty. And this piece that raises up women to help them create small businesses and so forth is dealing with women's issues, the empowerment of, of women, the creation of a world where we recognize that men and women are equal. This is one of the principles of the Baha'i faith, by the way, that the soul has no gender. And not until both wings of the bird of humanity are strengthened can the bird fly. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of, of putting it that, that you find in the Baha'i in the Baha'i writings, and Baha'is have been working toward this since the inception of the faith. And I believe we're developing a program we call Community Twinning, which takes the parish twinning program to another level. A community of support for a community in Haiti can look like anything. It could be maybe the core Catholic church where it all started. It might be a Protestant church. It might be a Jewish group. It might be a a university that's committed. It might be a high school. It might be a business. It might be a particular group of families. It might be a book club. It could look like anything is really the point. And so that opens up a world of possibility. We are exploring right now ways and means and have some very intriguing ideas on the table. I don't want to discuss them because they haven't been formulated yet. And I don't think that would be appropriate or fair to the, to the partners. But there's a wonderful, wonderful energy that's brewing. We have formed a consortium called the COVID-19 Preventative Response CPR. 
the Haiti CPR consortium of this core of NGOs that I've described, Parish Twinning and Smallholder Farmers and our group, Raising Haiti Foundation, taking a lead in this, but also we're being joined by a number of others. We're going to have our first Zoom chat where we're inviting the parishioners from the 300 plus churches who have been in support of Haiti and anybody else that would like to learn more and understand. We're expecting, we're praying for it not to be, but we're expecting Haiti. There have already been a number of cases. It's just begun in Haiti, um, several deaths. But I think two thirds of the Haitian people are not even in a position to wash their hands. You know, we don't realize and we take for granted the things that we're able to do against this disease or the things we're able to do in our lives that so many people on the planet don't have an opportunity. And our closest neighbor that is most at risk is Haiti. I believe that we're on the verge through this horrible disease that is bringing folks together. I mean, I've listened to leadership of much larger organizations than ours. We're fledgling compared to some that have been around for 40 and 50 years, have much larger budgets. I've heard them say that during the earthquake in 2010, when 250,000 Haitians died, all of the NGOs came rushing in and they cited themselves. (laughs) They confessed themselves that everyone sort of came in with a very territorial attitude, that they had the answer. No group worked with any other. And it was, as they said, a disaster. And I hear them without even realizing it. I've heard them speak words as if they were reading from a document from the Universal House of Justice, the world governing body of the Baha'i faith, guiding the Baha'is to a posture of humble learning. Baha'u'llah said, consort with the followers of all religions in the utmost friendliness and amity. This is not about this religion is better than that religion. This is about a time when God wants us to be united. And we can only do that if we respect from where each individual and group has come from. And these folks are saying, we made a mistake and they are using that terminology. They have, I've heard them say, we come now in a humble posture of learning. And I'm going, oh my goodness. And I was at a Zoom chat that Food for the Poor, they've been around for many, many years, and they had the, the bishop, the, the top Catholic, office in that country on this call, this was the attitude. And it was very loving. It was just lovely to be there, quite frankly. And at the end of it, they had commissioned a female artist to write a song that they played at the end, reflecting that spirit. And the title of the song is the same title of one of my favorite songs of all time. The title of the song is We Are One. And I remember as a young Baha'i, being in love with England Dan and John Ford Coley. They were superstars. You know, for the Baha'i community, they, they wrote this song. You can find it online. It's just lovely. Years later, everyone is feeling this movement away from polarization, away from isolation, and realizing, and I hear it more and more, I read it more and more, we are doomed if we don't recognize our common reality. In an old part of Jerusalem, the children are playing. 
Hoffman, Executive Director of Raising Haiti Foundation, thank you so much for joining us this hour to tell us about the work that your foundation is doing for Haiti. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Hoffman. 
founder of the Education Under Fire campaign for the persecuted Baha'i youth in Iran, and executive director of Raising Haiti Foundation. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Walking on the sixth string, trying to chase these blues away. Naturally, my thoughts return to you. I think of how my life has changed for better, forever. Life ain't so bad. I'm just glad to be here with you. Don't be
FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.